Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For For Chemist Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Danderen shortly. And of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. World Cup qualifiers dominated the international football landscape this week, while another Melbourne victory upset in the A-League Women's Grand Final over Sydney FC took the domestic headlines and we'll cover it all in this week's show. Starting with a look ahead to the perilous road the Socceroos have if they're to make it to Qatar in the World Cup later this year. As we all know, first stop is a visit to that very country and a playoff against the UAE, who, unlike the Australians, go into the match in their own backyard, coming off an impressive win over Iraq, which leapfrogged them into the playoff spot. The winner will take on Peru, also in Doha a week later, after the fifth-place South American team were robbed against Uruguay, then topped Colombia by a point to nab the lifeline. A man who any follower of South American football will be familiar with. An occasional guest of the show, Tim Vickery, will join us to answer the question we're all desperate to know if Australia can turn their miserable recent form around and beat the UAE, are Peru vulnerable? That's the question on everybody's lips. Willem after that with the latest on the Matildas and Socceroos from a club point of view and we'll have a real good look at the women's grand final in the A-League where, as I've already mentioned, Melbourne victory upset the back-to-back Premier Sydney FC. Then with the African qualifiers now done and dusted, we revisit our chat with Rob Stevens from BBC Sport Africa to look at the African Confederation teams who got through and the heartbreak for those who missed out. And of course, we'll wrap it up with stoppage time with Derek. Edge, um, look, a week has passed since uh, that night at Stadium Australia. Um, You've had a lot of time to think about it. We've since heard from uh, Football Australia that Graham Arnold is going to take the Socceroos through the qualification phase to its uh, very end, no matter how it ends up. Um, how have you seen the past week, mate? Hello, Rob. Hello, listeners uh, right around uh, Australia and all over the world to Box to Box. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a pressure time, isn't it? And um, there's been a lot of conjecture and speculation that Graham Arnold might have um, been sacked and a, uh, a person jettisoned into the uh, hot seat to help the Socceroos get over uh, what is what we now is uh, know is a pathway against UAE and Peru in Doha in June. However, that didn't happen, and the Federation Football Australia decided to stick with the man. Uh, that Ray Gat last week, um, veteran journalist Ray Gat said that he deserved to see it through, and that's the way the Football Australia uh, administration saw it. I don't know whether the majority of fans agree with that. I think most fans wanted to see Graham stepped aside and a new person, a new voice um, to energise a group that has struggled in the past uh, a few outings. And uh, and they also went down to Saudi Arabia in Jeddah 1-0. Um, having said that, they did play a little better than they played against Japan, in my view. Uh, and now uh, all of our thoughts, all of our preparations will be for those June matches in the heat in Doha. Willem, you have some strong opinions on the subject before you get into your news. I know uh, I don't want to uh, speak for you, but um, the Graham Arnold decision wasn't uh, one that you're particularly happy with. No, speak away, Rob. You're spot on. No, I'm certainly part of that majority, I think, who thinks he probably should be on his way, guys. It's their 
in the performance on the pitch and it's there in statistics as well. I don't often go to statistics, but if we have a look at it, uh, they banked nine points from their first three matches in this final stage of AFC qualifying. Uh, from the last seven games, just the six points, uh, a win and, and three draws. Uh, and gallingly, Michael, in the end, we actually only finished a point ahead of Oman. In with uh, So we had 15 points. They had 14, so they caught us up, up uh, caught up to us in the end. So, uh, yeah, no, I definitely think that... Uh, yeah, as I said, if you had have been sort of dropped a couple of wins early and then built to the back end, uh, I think it would have been worth retaining it. But no, I think they're completely out of gas. And I think, oh, Michael, I still think this group is good enough to get there. Uh, but I think to do that, we need to get our best 15 to 16 players fit. We need to get them played in their correct positions. Uh, and the players need to be rejuvenated and refreshed with some radical new ideas. And I don't think Arnold's the man to deliver that. Well, one-off cup games now, aren't they? Um, and it's all about uh, scoring goals and then defending. So, look, um, you know, they need to have plan A, B and C, um, depending on how the games unfold. Uh, UAE, um, they've really spluttered into this position as well. We should really have the talent to uh, dispatch UAE without any problems. I'm not being disparaging to my friends in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and I have many of them, but they just aren't as good as us. Um, that, uh, you know, they, they, they really, really struggled in, in their group. So, um, it's all about the bigger match for Peru with me and uh, Peru on the surface look like a much more creative and free-flowing team. And I can't wait to talk to Tim Vickery and uh, see what they make of their pathway to the World Cup in a match against the Socceroos or the UAE, most likely the Socceroos. Uh, it'll be interesting, but I'm with you, Will. They're good enough. Um, I would have liked, uh, potentially would have liked a, a, a fresh voice to re-energise the team. However, that's not to be the case. We've got to get behind Graham and make sure that... Uh, Everybody in our community is supporting the Socceroos to ensure that we get over the UAE and have that big match against Peru. And, you know, fingers crossed, uh, we've got enough in the tank to, to get through that game. It looks like a pretty simple equation with the UAE as well. Stop Ali Mabkoop, stop the side. He's got 13 goals so far through qualifying, and that actually puts him top of the world in this uh, in this World Cup qualifying cycle across all the confederations. Uh, he stands atop with 13. Uh, the team that have the player who's second, Kyle Lahren, are of course Canada, and I think just about everyone would agree uh, that they are the feel-good story of world football this week. They've broken a 36-year drought to qualify for just their second ever World Cup. Their managers are Geordie, John Herdman, and he took over four years ago, uh, guys. He's taken them from 94th in the world to CONCACAF's top team. Kyle Lahren, as I mentioned, of Besiktas scored 13 uh, across the qualifying period. So that would be 14 for Ali Mabkut, sorry. And the uh, Jonathan David, he scored nine uh, to put him 10th. So, Rob, it's not hard to draw the parallels between Canada and Australia. We had 32 years between uh, our first and second World Cups. They've had uh, 36. Uh, they're also probably not the primary sport in their country. They're con uh, competing with quite a few sports for, for hearts and minds and, and finances as well. So uh, a, a remarkable story. And I think they will be the neutral's choice uh, when we get to Qatar at the end of the year, if uh, the soccer aren't there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it, there's so many contrasts, isn't there, that particularly... Uh, um, with the fact that uh, they've had a, a, a similar length of drought to what we had, the fact that their women's team is generally considered to be the better side in their country and uh, is the one that, uh, that that gets most of the headlines. But look, I just love the fact that Herdman uh, turned things on their head with Canada. Uh, we talked about this a little while ago and, and they've always been known as the sort of nice guys of the of the confederation. So so rather than, uh, than 
um, be proud and and, and lose uh, with that sort of sobriquet. They they turned things around and started uh, scheduling games on unfriendly pitches in unfriendly locations during unfriendly weather conditions, and uh, uh, and and the side uh, became a, a a real brotherhood. Uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, the the um, Canadian Prime Minister uh, jumped on the bandwagon as any good politician does, and uh, and was the first to, to send a tweet out. So, look, hats off to um, Canada. Like you uh, said, they'll be uh, a team that um, that I definitely jump on the bandwagon with. Um, well, hopefully, we still have the Socceroos in there, but um, my second team, uh, who I've been following for many years, Italy, obviously not there. So, uh, yeah, go Canada. Well done, the Maple Leafs. Let's have a look at the world of club football now. And isn't this a, a story? Barcelona have broken the record for the highest attendance at a women's sporting event ever. 91,533 people attended their demolition of Real Madrid in the Champions League quarterfinals. Astonishingly, over 99,000 Camp Nou tickets had been sold by January, but heavy rain put a literal dampener on hopes of filling the stands. But fill them they did, as Barca ran out 5-2 winners, 8-3 on aggregate they won. It breaks the previous record of 90,195 that attended the 99 World Cup final at the Rose Bowl. Well, of course, Rob, and I know you were there on this night, the MCG managed 86,000 for the T20 World Cup final in 2020 and to put an even more astonishing point on this story that was actually the first time the women's side had ever graced the camp new so that advertises for a long from a long way out uh as as quite a big event and it delivered yeah massive story isn't it and uh, just a, a great story for for women's sport women's football in particular so uh, uh hopefully you know we see more of it to come and uh, and it sort of ripples around the world uh, i'm a huge advocate of if you build it they will come if you if you uh, put on the big events and you promote them correctly uh, give uh, sports people men or women uh, a stage to perform on that they'll they'll rise to the occasion so no that's great news and uh, no doubt um we'll, we'll we would just will over the years to come see see more of it it's um, it's a it's a defining day, really, isn't it? And finally, back home, Manchester United are the latest international powerhouse to book exhibition matches in Australia. Uh, they will play Melbourne Victory and Crystal Palace on July 15 and 19. Victory hosted Liverpool in 2013 and drew 95,000 at the G, while United were last in Australia in 2013 when they played the A-League All-Stars in what was, I think, the first tour for United under David Moyes. United's previous visit to the the MCG came 23 years ago in 1999 when they played the Socceroos in front of 60,000 off the back of their treble under Sir Alex Ferguson. Michael, that was the first game United played uh, after lifting the treble. And their goalkeeper that night was Mark Bosnich playing against the Socceroos. That's just wrong all these years later. Was it contentious <laughs> at the time? It certainly was. It, wrong is, is a, wrong in capital letters. So, yeah, look, yeah, you've... Uh, those people who listen to our podcast regularly will know that my um, support for club friendlies in Australia um, is not good. It's not good, and club teams playing national teams is a is a is a relic of the past. We don't do those things anymore, thank God. Um, look, I don't mind the big brands coming here to play, like Liverpool versus Manchester, uh, Liverpool versus um, uh, Melbourne Victory, or Sydney FC versus Celtic. I like that. Um, don't like the idea of Manchester United playing Crystal Palace in a in a scratch match uh, as to fill their coppers in the, the preseason. I don't think that's good for anyone really. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll see. There'll be popular events. Um, the Australian sports going public have been starved of of decent events to uh, to go to during uh, the COVID time. So I'm sure that they will be well attended. I'm sure there'll be a financial success for governance. Economic impact will be good. Uh, but in terms of um, 
uh, whether that's good for football. Don't really know. What do you think, Rob? We've all been disappointed before. We've all uh, fallen for the promotion where the first team are going to come out and the tickets are bought in advance and uh, uh, these matches are a, tri- a triumph of, uh, of uh, uh, style over substance and uh, on the day we find that the uh, you know the stars don't turn up and um, and the, the matches are insipid. But uh, the, all of that said, uh, there are plenty of fans who love uh, their international stars who will not get the opportunity to see them uh, and uh, and if uh, they know what they're in for, um, and um, and they uh, they go into it um, with their eyes open, and uh, and don't um, set themselves up to have their hearts broken when uh, you know Cristiano Ronaldo doesn't come, uh, then um, they uh, yeah, yeah they, they can buy their tickets, and uh, you know what do they say? Yeah, let the buyer beware. But uh, um, yeah, I, I'm not that down on it, especially after the success of the Liverpool victory match all those years ago. That's the one um, shining light. The only thing I am disappointed about is that the uh, that the ties um, managed to get the uh, the Liverpool Manchester United uh, game uh, um, in uh, the Aramanjala Stadium edge. Um, in how did we? Roger Mangala, Rob. Roger Mangala. Uh, don't normally need to pre- correct your pronunciation. Almost you correcting mine. It's a role reversal. Yeah, it is a role reversal, isn't it? I, well, uh, okay, touche. Um, you you are a part tie. Given the <laughs> I appear that way, don't I? Um, look. Um, uh, the Thailand government um, is desperate for tourism events. This is a tourism event. They'll be looking to uh, leverage a whole heap of uh, um, foreign visitation, especially from other Asian Asian uh, environments and expatriates. So that uh, makes a bit of sense. That's a tourism event only. Uh, Raja Mangala Stadium is a massive stadium. Over 70,000 can fill that joint. And um, it'll be heaving because uh, the Thais, they love their Premier League like, like they love their chilli, Rob. Okay, um, stick around after the break. Um, Tim Vickery, I just love listening to Tim, whether it's his voice, whether it's his knowledge, whether it's his uh, just his passion for the game in South America. He's uh, a great uh, pundit to listen to. So uh, we love having him on the show and uh, we've got a, uh, a big question to ask him. Can, uh, if the Socceroos beat the UAE, can they beat Peru? Stick around. That is shortly on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. We've watched plenty of heartbreak over the last couple of weeks in World Cup qualifications. Uh, the likes of Italy bowing out and, uh, and other countries, Northern Macedonia, North Macedonia the minnows who thought that uh, they might finally have their day in the sun. So it's sort of making us feel a little bit better that the Socceroos, after uh, their sort of calamitous late uh, uh, qualification fade-out, have still got a chance, uh, have to beat the UAE on the 7th of June in Qatar. And if we can get over UAE, we need to beat the the fifth-place team in or from the the South American qualifying group, who, of course, is Peru. And uh, there's no better man to talk about that than uh, one of the the world's uh, preeminent authorities on South American football, Tim Vickery. And we welcome Tim back to the show. How are you, Tim? A bit too early to say, but uh, uh, Mm. looking forward to kicking a ball around with you over the next few minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, Tim, I, I watched um, some highlights of of, uh, of what's probably one of the most controversial ties in the South American qualification phase. And and the more I look at it, um, uh, that Paolo Guerra shot uh, where uh, Sergio Rocher uh, stepped back into his goal in, in the second last match where Peru had to beat Uruguay in Montevideo, the more you think that we Australia shouldn't be playing Peru, Peru should already be qualified. I, I don't actually agree. 
I've seen. I mean, they, they're they're quite transparent, actually. Comedy Ball, um, the South American Confederation, releasing the the VAR Im- images and and uh, the conversation between the the, the VAR officials, uh, and uh, they've shown us the the images and so on, and you can't clearly see that the ball is over the line. Uh, and remember, it's, it wasn't even a shot. It was a mishit cross from the left-back, Trauco. Um, Peru, they did some belly aching, but they, were, they had two clear chances at the start of the game, mm. and then Uruguay began to find some rhythm and, and scored. And Peru had the entire second half to score an equaliser. And do you know how many, how, how many shots on goal they had? I think one was Zero. Yeah. Well, don't you count that shot? I mean, it was a looping shot, but he was still, he was aiming for the goal. And it's got to be No, it was a cross. It? It, was, it was a miss-hit cross from, from, mm. from Trauco. Um, so they, they, they produced nothing, you know. When, uh, uh, so I, I thought, it, I mean, even the, the, the proving goalkeeper was, was howling indignation at the final whistle. And how could he see? He's at the other end. You know, how, how on earth does, it, does he know? Um, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely full of admiration for, for, for what Peru have done. I think their coming fifth is, is, is remarkable. But it's far, far better, I think, for, for uh, Australia that you're going to be facing. You have the chance of facing Peru and, and not Uruguay because uh, Uruguay, I think, would be the, would be the stronger team. Uh, and on that night against against uh, against Uruguay, as I say, Peru had the entire second half to do something and, and and did nothing. And I don't think you can clearly see that the ball crossed the line. And it, it's it's a miss. It cross. It doesn't it, it doesn't even deserve a goal. So for me, that's uh, um, that 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 was an, an attack of of Peru binging palms for a few minutes. Ecuador qualifying for the FIFA World Cup is a good story. Can you tell us about? their run and how they've managed to slip in a fourth and get the job done. At the start of the competition, um, when they played England in 2006, the biggest game in their history, in that second round game, they lost they lost 1-0. Uh, their striker, Carlos Tenorio, hit the bar in that game. And uh, he gave an interview the other day and he was saying, well, we've got to be honest, when this thing started, 99.9% of Ecuadorians didn't think we were going to make it. And here we are. Uh, there's there's been lots of chaos behind the scenes. Um, they've uh, they they had a project with Jordi Cruyff, who walked away. Um, so they got in an Argentine coach at the last minute, Gustavo Alfaro, and he's done. He's done an extraordinary job. There is raw material to work with in Ecuador because uh, one of the things that's really standing out in the country is its youth development. Um, they did very, very well in the last under-20 World Cup when they were South American champions. And they, they, they reached the semi. I think they came third in the last under-20 under World Cup. So they, there's youth to work with. And the coach has really given youth its, its head. And it's, a, it's a very young side, Ecuador. They are very physical. And they're quick. Um, but they don't have a great deal of strength in depth. I and mean, it's not, not a particularly big country, so you wouldn't expect them to. Um, but if everyone is, is if, if the key players are all there and all firing, then they can be a very interesting side. Now, I, I don't think that they're not going to get anywhere near winning the World Cup. I don't think they're going to make the quarterfinals, although I do think they've got a chance of, of making the second round. 
But w- what is interesting about them is the, the, the generation of young players that they have coming through and their speed and, and physicality. And w- one thing that the coach said a couple of weeks ago is that his team is so physically good and so quick that they can defend higher up the field even than Brazil. Um, and uh, that, he's obviously got the data to, to, to back that one up. So they're an interesting side to look at, maybe even to put down a marker for, for, for 26, because some of the, the, the young talent coming through is, is, is very interesting indeed. We are all excited this end and, and, and maybe slightly scared about what will happen to the Socceroos when they come up against Peru. What do you sense the feeling will be like on the Peru side of things? Obviously, Australia, because of the nature of qualifying, have had many a joust against, uh, uh, against the South American side. Uh, do you think they'll be aware of the struggles of this team and the underperformance, or do they still see this kind of side as a potentially dangerous fixture? Well, they've got a lot of time to do their their research, haven't they? They've uh, uh, and and Gareca, the coach, will 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 spend a lot of time analysing Australia. Um, but if it is Australia, um, Peru will just look back to the to the World Cup in Russia and, and remember the two 0 victory and. They will they will consider themselves favourites. I mean, it, it it's it's been an extraordinary story, Peru, and in 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 a sense, the same thing has happened both times in both these qualification campaigns. Um, they got off to a bad start in in the the twenty eighteen qualifiers, and then there was this Copa America, this extra Copa America in the in the the, the celebrating the centenary of the competition in the United States in twenty sixteen. And that's where Peru regrouped, came out of that uh, with, with uh, he, the, the coach had sorted out his personnel and and wielded his team into a unit, and they came out of that copper in 2016, and then they picked up momentum that got them through to fifth place, and they overcame New Zealand over two legs there in order to qualify for Russia, uh, and a, a similar thing, maybe even even more dramatically, happened this time because. They made an absolutely disastrous start to the qualifiers. Um, coming out and going into the, the Copa America that was played in Brazil last year, Peru were, were bottom of the table. Uh, and, you know, no chance. Surely they've got no chance. But they regrouped again, used that Copa America as a, as, as a starting point to pick up momentum. And after that Copa America, only Brazil and Argentina picked up more points than uh, than, than they did, um, so momentum is is really with them now. They've uh, they've they've closed the campaign exceptionally well, and no given their own momentum, and given that win against Australia in in, in 2018, Peru will will consider themselves as favourites. Not not in any not in, in, in any sense of, of arrogance or, or, or anything like that, but just on on a, the cold hard facts. But they've uh, they have got uh, they've got a task in, in front of them and that they will in, in no way underestimate their opponents. But uh, I think they'll 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 walk in with a with a, a swagger as, as as wide as that as that sash on their shirts. Looking at the top end of the qualifying, we know that uh, Brazil and Argentina qualified um, long ago now. I suppose Argentina uh, has special game for them in the chocolate box a couple of nights ago where we think uh, 
I think Messi will have played his last home game uh, in the the blue and white stripes. Uh, well, only time will tell, I suppose. There, but Brazil have cruised through this. They they you know don't often always cruise through. Uh, you know, I remember a few recent campaigns where they've kind of huffed and puffed, but they've cruised you know through this pretty comfortably and. While there's names like Neymar and Coutinho on the course sheet, on the score sheet, for example, people we know, there are some super exciting young players as well. Not not the least uh, Arsenal's youngster Martinelli. How how does this Brazil team shape up compared to others? And you know the pressure's always on them, but have they got a real chance this year? They're, they're in it to win it. There's been a real real change of mentality here over the last few months. You know, if if you if you asked them say seven or eight months ago, the Brazilian public would have said, "No, we're terrible. We're terrible. We've got no chance." Fast forward to now, and uh, morale is extremely high, and and justifiably so um, as well. Um, They've got more quality goalkeepers and centre-backs than they know what to do with. They don't look like conceding goals. Uh, so they've, they've got a platform there. And just in the last few months, they've begun to find an attacking blend. Uh, and and the, the excellent thing is the rise of, say, Vinicius Jr., uh, Hafinha of Leeds, who just slotted into the side. And suddenly, it's not all about Neymar. And that's good for Neymar as well, because otherwise the pressure on him in, in the career, which will define his his reputation in a, as a as a player for the national team, the pressure was just inhumane. So now that burden is 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 being eased, and uh, they've 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 really found something. Um, they can travel with huge confidence, as can Argentina, who have I think the best team that Messi's played in. And so on the shambles that they were in in Russia, I was I was honestly surprised that they got out of the group in Russia. They only just got out of the group, and in the end, they, they gave because of flashes of individual genius that they gave France a, a game for a while in Russia. But they were they're such an absolute shambles, and they're not now. They're a team that circuit of midfield passing with uh, Paredes and Depaul and Lo Celso means that they're able to give Messi the ball closer to the opposing goal in areas where he can be dangerous. Uh, and uh, the defence, which is it, it's still a little question mark that you have against them. Um, but they haven't been conceding either, especially since they found a goalkeeper at last, Emiliano Martinez of Villa. And uh, Christian Romero is probably the best centre-back that they've produced in a while. The, the big tests, and th- this this is true for both Brazil and Argentina, the big test is uh, the, the Western Europeans. And since Brazil won the World Cup in 2002, every campaign has ended when they faced Western European opposition in the knockout stage. Uh, Argentina here in, in Brazil in 2014, yes, they did get through um, Switzerland, Belgium and, and, and Holland in the knockout stage, but also all of their campaigns have ended um, at, at the hands of, of the Western Europeans. So that's the test. And what makes this is this especially intriguing is that because of a mixture of the pandemic and the Nations League, there almost hasn't been international games between Europe and South America since Russia. Uh, Brazil have played one European side, which is the Czech Republic. Uh, 
Italy have played Germany. Italy will, uh, uh, sorry, Argentina have faced, faced Germany. Argentina will play Italy in June. Not that that's any longer relevant as far as the World Cup is concerned. Um, but it, 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 Brazil can't fix up European opponents in June. It's the reason that Brazil, because there's still this match to be played from the World Cup qualification, Brazil's home game against Argentina. Uh, FIFA insisting that it that it be played, and Brazil want to take it to Australia in June. Um, that that's the idea of of Brazil's FA. Uh, um, given that Argentina are already going to be in Europe to face Italy, I'm not sure Argentina are going to want to schlep all the way over there. So uh, that that's one that still that still has to be defined. So at some point be- before the World Cup, they have to face um, they have to face each other. But the real test is going to be knockout stages against Western European opposition, uh, and it, it's so intriguing um, that we don't know how that's going to that's going to play out. We've, we've, we've got little, little, little to, to base, to base it on. Um, but certainly I think Brazil and, and Argentina collectively and, and individually look, look very, very impressive. I, I would put Brazil a little bit ahead because I, I, I trust their defensive unit more than I trust the defensive unit of, of, of Argentina. But both of them are looking very, very strong. And, you know, it's, it's been 20 years since South America has won a World Cup, but both Brazil and Argentina, I think, are in it to win it. Tim, we are always fascinated to listen to uh, your reflections and your observations, mate. Um, it's uh, it's just wonderful. We uh, obviously hear you on the BBC and, and various other media outlets, so it's it's great to, to have you on our show. And I think I'm not sure whether you broke some news. Uh, hopefully, you did uh, with that story about uh, Brazil and Argentina possibly coming here. And uh, given you've got uh, well, Brazil has so many. Uh, uh, so much of a, of, a, of a backlog of talent that you can't pick uh, some of the world's best in your squad, mate. Feel free to, to leave them because we certainly don't suffer from that uh, issue in Australia, <laughs> as you well know. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe maybe I can ask you for 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 stuff now because you know don't get a, a great deal of chance to to watch Australia. What's gone wrong? You know, the idea of of switching to Asia it, it was going to raise the the, the competitive level of, of uh, Australia's opposition and this was going to develop the team and so on. And, and, and here we are with uh, you were uh, having a bad run in qualification and not even sure if you can get past the, the Arab Emirates. What, what's, yeah, look, what hasn't I, gone right with Australia and where yeah, is the team Michael, at this moment? I know Michael will have a view on this, um, but, uh, but uh, my uh, view is, is generally the collective one that after the golden generation of 2006, who you'll recall famously beat Uruguay, uh, in that home and away tie to, to qualify and did incredibly well to get out of the group stage and uh, and almost beat Italy, the ultimate champions in that German World Cup, that uh, despite the fact that Australia's made four consecutive World Cups, uh, the, uh, the the problem that we generally have is youth development and uh, and that golden generation that we had uh, with the likes of Harry Kuehl, Mark Viduka, Marco Bresciano, Mark Schwartz, uh, the, the team was uh, a team that was playing in top flight competitions in in the top European competitions around the world. Now we struggle to even get one player playing in the top flight. Why didn't that generation inspire an even better, you know, from from, from such a great sporting nation as Australia, you would have hoped that, you know, so many kids who before might have gone into cricket or or, or something else might have been inspired with football and your next crop would have been even better. Michael, over to you. Well, I wish uh, we, we can go on for about three hours here. Rob hit the nail on the head around development, but we had around that time of the 2005 
2006 qualification a real um, revolution in the game. Administratively, there was a big uh, there was a big break, and there was for three almost four years our national league went into recess. Um, that had a big um, uh, break in momentum on development, and then um, of recent times, it's really been the quality of our local competition stymieing the uh, development of players that would have would have had there not been a national league been in Europe, Tim. I think that's a very brief summary of um, a key development issue. But uh, don't forget, Tim, the World Cup has been expanded to 52 teams in the next edition. So Australia will qualify every year through Asia. And the move from Oceania to Asia was a good move because we only had one meaningful game every four years in in, uh, Oceania. And now we have eight a year and some very competitive fixtures against the best Asian teams. So um, commercially... Uh, um, popularity, the amount of football that's watched on TV now um, is much more than it ever was because we're in Asia. Uh, However, all of our problems are in, uh, and they're all self-inflicted, Tim, uh, are in the development pathways, whether players should uh, leave for bigger clubs in Europe or stay in Australia is a big debate at the moment. uh, And I'm very much in the camp that uh, if you're good enough, you should be applying your trade in Europe where the competition's tougher than uh, picking up some lazy money in Australia. And let's not forget the fact that, um, Tim, as you're well aware, that uh, the Australian rules football is a, is a veritable religion in the southern states of, of Australia. Uh, rugby league is incredibly well supported in the northern states. And then you've got rugby union as well. So uh, we often say, football fans in this country, if, if we could just pick out uh, you know 5% of the best talented uh, footballers uh, in those other codes, uh, that, um, that we would be a lot more competitive. So if you improve the pathways and take some of this talent, um, then, then our national side would be a lot more consistent. You're not going to change anything in so far as the, those other codes are concerned in the short term. So we have to include improve the pathways. And yeah, Tim, I'm, I'm imagining here what kind of position DPI Dominica would have played on the football yeah. field, the big dipper. If he'd have been a yes. football player. You do know a bit about it. Or Cyril Rioli uh, or um, Buddy yeah, Franklin. Our, our Indigenous players, just incredibly talented people. Yeah. And the South Pacific players as well. Derek, you were going to say something? Oh, I was just pointing out to Rob that that was a very large can. Sorry, to Tim that that was a very large can of worms that he just opened up with that uh, <laughs> that 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 remark about what's wrong with Australian football. You could do a whole podcast series on it. The keg of worms, Derek. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Tim. Look, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I know our listeners will have loved the fact that we uh, we probably just doubled the time that we normally spend on on a chat. Uh, but uh, when you get Tim Vickery on, you chat for as long as you can. So uh, thanks so much for making the time from Rio and uh, getting up early for us as you've done. And uh, mate, we hope to to talk to you again soon, closer closer to the World Cup. Look forward to it. Cheers. Not at all. The great Tim Vickery on box to box. Okay, stick around. Uh, we're going to talk more Socceroos and Matildas after the break. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal. Yes, of this all. is box to box. Great chat with Tim Vickery just now. We're going to leap into. Uh, more discussion on the Socceroos and, of course, the Matildas. Have a look at the grand final, the A-League Women's Grand Final. Uh, what a, a thriller it was. Melbourne victory upsetting Sydney FC. But before we do that, 
half-price vitamins are always a good deal. And you can get them right now at Chemist Warehouse. Centrum products right now are a great deal. Centrum Beautiful and Bright 100 tablets for just $17.49 each. Centrum Advanced Multivitamin 100 tablets for $11.74. Centrum Calm and Collected 100 tablets just $27.49. And Centrum Movement and Mobility 100 tablets for $17.49. This is the time to get in and get a deal. I always love to shop at Chemist Warehouse when the half-price deals are on. Double your money double your product and you will get looked after when you visit our friends at Chemist Warehouse. Remember, in addition to visiting your local store, you can click and collect to save time, order online for delivery by Australia Post for free shipping on orders over $50 or call your local Chemist Warehouse store and ask for same day home delivery. T's and C's and charges may apply. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings are every single day and make sure you get in there for your flu shot. Willem, have you done that yet? Uh, I have. Yes, I have my flu shot, Chemist Warehouse. It uh, could not have been easier in, out, half price on the uh, on the items on the way. Uh, it was uh, quite the afternoon at Chemist Warehouse. Socceroos and Matilda Central, Rob, it's going to be quite the uh, quite the June in the uh, Middle Eastern country of Qatar. Uh, we do it for the Green and Gold Army, where packages are now available to support the Socceroos in Qatar when they face the UAE and hopefully Peru en route to the World Cup finals. You'll also be able to cheer on New Zealand or Costa Rica, depending on which way you want to go in their playoff clash uh, across what will be a high-stakes week in the Middle East. So book today at ggatravel.com.au. Let's chat a bit of Matildas. Tony Gustafsson's made just the one change from the failed Asian Cup squad for next week's friendlies against New Zealand. In comes Katrina Gorry, out goes Holly McNamara. It means, Michael, there's still no room for A-League Women's Championship midfielder Alex Chidiak, who's won the victory medal in the last week. With Gustafsson changing his rhetoric, he's now said it's time to start narrowing down, having given all and sundry an opportunity over the past 12 months. How does that sit with you? Not very well. Um, I think things can change quickly and... Um, yeah, look, uh, they've identified a group of players, but he should keep his mind open to players that are emerging and uh, or hit uh, a purple patch of form where they're playing in Europe and so forth. There is uh, quite a few players in and around the Matilda setup um, who um, could uh, add a lot of value to that uh, that squad. Alex Chidiak, obviously, is one of those. She's been actually invited into the squad at the last moment uh, for the injured Kyra Cooney-Cross. Um yeah, so whether you're Molina Ayers or Rachel Lowe or those types of players, uh, I would like to see that Tony uh, kept an open mind. So I don't think much of that comment will. The young Matildas are going to step up their preparation for the Under-20 World Cup with a pair of friendlies against New Zealand's junior football ferns. They'll be played in Canberra. The matches are going to be played on the 6th and the 10th. So, of course, one of those is the day that the senior Australian and New Zealand women's sides will meet. So this will be a bit of a curtain raiser. They're actually going to be the first time Leah Blaney has coached a side at the level uh, since the 2019 Asian Cup. And that squad, Michael, includes Charlie Rule, Jamila Rankin, Briley Henry and Jessica Nash. So uh, exciting times there. And there was also uh, a bit of action for the underage boys who have spent the best part of the last week uh, in Holland under uh, Trevor Morgan. Paul Ocon and Craig Moore were there as well. They played a couple of matches and had a bit of a training camp. Uh, they lost 1-0 to Utrecht's young boys. Then they drew 2 all with the Dutch under-19. So that probably shows where we're at. Our under-23s have uh, drawn with the, the Dutch under-19s. But uh, still plenty of exciting players there. Ryan Teague, Elu Quoll. And despite how poorly the senior national uh, side's going, there's always a bit of regenerative optimism when you look at this list of names and think what could be in the years down the track. Certainly could, yeah, but we just we've just been lacking games, haven't we? And that's I think that's the that's the real key takeout. I mean, even the uh, the squads for both of those uh, 
teams you mentioned, the young Matildas and the uh, under-23s over in Holland, there was names that you would expect to be in those lists that are not. And uh, I think there is uh, just a lack of games at the moment. So uh, things will start to unfold for those two groups as they uh, as they get more games. But thank God that we've got our national teams back, you know, having camps and playing games again. It's been so long since... Uh, the group of players have uh, been able to get together, so that's a good that's a good sign. Um, however, I'm expecting to see quite a few changes in these squads as um, you know, as the the national selectors start to filter through options they've got for both of those age groups. Let's just have a look at a few uh, at how a few of our Matildas are going at Clubland before we have a look at the A League Women's Grand Final. The English Women's Super League is nearing the pointy end, and Chelsea have leapfrogged Arsenal in first, courtesy of a nine-nil hammering of Leicester. Sam Kerr, of course, in the thick of the action, scoring the second and setting up the third inside ten minutes before adding a seventh just after half time. Uh, in the Danish Kvendelega, a trio of Aussies enjoyed a win with Fortuna Hjoring. Angela Beard and Claire Wheeler played the full ninety, while India Page Riley came off the bench, and the Swedish Damol Svensson is back. Claire Polkinghorn playing 90 minutes for Vizio uh, in their round one draw. And we should mention the Women's Champions League quarterfinals are underway, so good luck to all Aussies involved. Friday morning, we'll see Steph Catley, Caitlin Ford, and maybe Lydia Williams involved for Arsenal against Wolfsburg, and Joe Montemuro's Juventus face Leon, of course, the club of Ellie Carpenter. Michael, the A-League Women's Grand Final again delivered another ding-dong, gripping, engrossing contest, really, in front of five and a half at Cogera, uh, a fantastic match. Casey Dumont, body on the line and uh, rightly won player of the match honours for the victory. And it was the type of match, I mean, we spoke to Steph Brandt ahead, uh, ahead of the match and she rightly sort of delved into some of the macro issues facing the women's game and Australian football in general. But this was the type of match where you can just zone in for, for 90, uh, got up to about 100 minutes at the end and just enjoy a cracking contest uh, and forget about all those big issues because this was as good as it gets. Yeah, two teams that have had a, a great history of uh, competition between them, the two heavyweights of the A-League women's competition, a, a grand final that was worthy of um, of the event. It was 5,500 people uh, and a very wet, gloomy, rainy day in Sydney. So maybe a few more might have ventured out in the event that the sun was shining. But uh, yeah, you've got to hand it to Melbourne Victory who hung in the game. The first 30 minutes were all Sydney. The, they were under enormous pressure. Casey DeMont made four or five uh, goal-saving uh, interventions, uh, the, the Melbourne Victory goalkeeper, uh, who kept them in the game. And then, um, as it can happen from time to time, Willem, um, a team that's on top for a long period of time and doesn't convert, uh, then found themselves on the back foot when, um, you know, the likes of uh, Amy Jackson, Melina Ayres, Alex Chirac, uh, Catherine Zimmerman uh, and Leah Privatelli all combined to create a, a sway of chances and two goals found themselves in the back of the net. And then... Um, and then a goal um, that uh, was uh, was well taken by Courtney Vine um, uh, off a rebound from Casey DeMont got Sydney back into the game. But Melbourne Victory hung on and uh, another historic uh, back-to-back championship for uh, the Melbourne Victory. The first time ever uh, in the A-League women's or W-League history that uh, a team has won a back-to-back grand final. So well done to Melbourne Victory, Melbourne Victory and Sydney FC. Uh, are definitely the two standout clubs and programs. Uh, a few takeouts from the game. A selection shock. Sarah Hunter replaced Rachel Lowe. Rachel Lowe, 11 straight starts for Sydney FC and then benched for the grand final. Uh, that uh, raised eyebrows right around the ground and uh, even the opposition uh, coaches were 
uh, were surprised at that one. So that was an interesting selection. Um, Rachel O did come on uh, in the second half and provided quite a bit of spark and could have equalised uh, a shot just missing the, the bar. And Ante uh, Urich after the game, uh, obviously extremely disappointed. Uh, wasn't too, um, wasn't too uh, congratulatory through to his um, opposition coach and players. He thought Melbourne victory didn't deserve to be in the grand final and, um, and uh, shouldn't have won the game. Uh, that's football. when uh, Jeff Hopkins has now become the most successful coach in the history of the competition for four wins so um, unfortunate that um, you know that lack of grace uh, happened to to um, you know uh, uh, encroach the, the the celebrations obviously you know Sydney FC have got something to work on they've lost four grand finals out of the past five uh, um, you know I think uh, looking in your own backyard might be more important than uh, and saying the opposition don't deserve to be there after they've just pulled your pants down. Yeah, look, uh, emotional times after a grand final when you've been on top and haven't been able to, um, you know, uh, convert chances. It would have been a different game had if they got one or two of their early chances, but not to be for Sydney FC fans. But a great spectacle, a great event, and um, I must admit, um, loving the emotion of the players uh, who all of them individually have been on amazing journeys. So uh, anybody who wins a... Uh, a championship at that level, Rob, deserves to let their hair down. And that's what the uh, Melbourne Victory girls did. They had a great time in Sydney on Sunday night. And anyone who was watching the television closely would have seen you wandering about on the pitch um, congratulating um, some of the players there as, a, as a, an accredited uh, um, individual um, in the um, in the footballing firmament, Edge. So um, you, uh, you seem to be enjoying yourself, mate. I did. Very happy for the players that I've worked with over a number of years. Uh, to um, Good to... Um, Get a hug from them in their moment of joy after the game. Congratulations, Melbourne Victory. Better luck next year, Sydney FC. Okay, stick around. Uh, after the break, we are going to uh, dissect the African qualifiers with a man who's been uh, with us on a couple of occasions over the last few months, um, Rob Stevens, BBC Sport Africa. He is an expert. He's going to talk to us about it. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of yes, all. This is Box to Box. Now a couple of months ago when the African Cup of Nations were on, we were fortunate enough to meet uh, Rob Stevens from BBC Sport Africa. He did a preview and then a wrap-up of the event and promised to join us again when the World Cup Nations were decided in the African Confederation. And they are done now. And Rob joins us again. How are you, Rob? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Just about recovering from uh, the playoffs earlier on this week, which uh, which were dramatic, to say the least. Yeah, they certainly were. Uh, obviously, Ghana, Senegal, Tunisia, Morocco and Cameroon. Um, I know the boys have got plenty of questions for you, but but uh, who who would you say was the unluckiest of uh, the teams not to, to get through and the, the, uh, the, the hard luck story? Well, I'd have to go for two, uh, really. I know that's cheating slightly. Algeria and Egypt. Uh, Algeria had scored a 118th minute goal, uh, which they thought was going to send them to uh, to Qatar. But then, unbelievably, Cameroon uh, won the tie on the night 2-1 uh, to progress on away goals with uh, a goal in the 124th minute from Carl Toko Akambi. It looked like time was up. Uh, the ball was pumped forward, header came down, and there was Carl Toko Akambi to sweep the ball home. Uh, he did absolutely brilliantly. Incredible scenes for Cameroon. Uh, Algeria had never lost in bleeder uh, since playing there since uh, 2004, some 40-odd matches, I think, the run was that they'd been unbeaten there, uh, and they dramatically were knocked out. As for Egypt, uh, they lost on a penalty shootout to Senegal, barely 
barely uh, two months after they'd lost on a penalty shootout to Senegal in the Africa Cup of Nations. So it was a case of history repeating for Egypt. And uh, Mohamed Salah uh, was the man who never took a penalty in the Africa Cup of Nations final. This time he went first for Egypt and he missed. Uh, I'm sure you'd have seen the the pictures and the and the footage of the laser pens trained on Mohamed Salah and the Egyptian players during that shootout and during the whole match itself, which had become uh, controversial. Uh, but those two are probably the, the two that are the hardest luck stories, Egypt and Algeria. Amazing. Now, I'm going to take you to Nigeria and Ghana. It is uh, the West African derby. Uh, there's a lot of passion and energy in that game. And it was uh, the Nigerians who were sitting back after a nil-all draw in Ghana thinking, we've only got to uh, win at home. Um, it was a very vociferous crowd. But Thomas Party, he well and truly... Um, uh, through the cat among the pigeons or the cat among the eagles, I should say, because he opened the scorey, scoring and there was a goalkeeping howler that allowed him to do it. That meant that Nigeria needed to score two goals and uh, unfortunately they couldn't do it. What did you think of the drama and the jeopardy involved in that tie, Rob? Yeah, I mean, when that one was drawn out, there was a sharp intake of breath because they're two traditional heavyweights, neighbours, complete rivals among a broad range of you know, spheres of food, music, pop, uh, film, everything that you could think about is is these two countries going at it, sometimes friendly, but sometimes it spills over. On this occasion, Nigeria probably on paper had the better squads. They had the better run at the Africa Cup of Nations getting out of the group stage, whereas Ghana had a, an embarrassing exit. Ghana, Ghana fired their coach, um, uh, and appointed Otto Addo, and then uh, had Chris Hewton come in as technical director, the former Newcastle and Brighton manager. Nigeria, meanwhile, stuck with Augustine Egwavoin. Uh, they they got the draw in, in Kumasi in the first leg, and Nigeria, in some ways, maybe might have been overconfident and thought that they had it in the bag. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, Thomas Partey got that early goal, leaving Nigeria needing two. It's interesting because Nigeria... Uh, the Nigeria goalkeeper Maduka Okoye came in for criticism after uh, conceding a long-range goal in in their defeat by Tunisia at the Africa Cup of Nations. This time they went with a different goalkeeper, Francis Uzoho. He was the one who who befell the goalkeeping error, um, and Nigeria couldn't recover despite all the attacking quality that they had. They managed to get an equaliser from the penalty spot, but the likes of Emmanuel Dennis, Victor Osimhen couldn't find a way through. And actually, more than anything else. Uh, the headline's been made by the reaction of the Nigerian fans after the game in Abuja, uh, who who pelted the Ghanaian players uh, and uh, delegation with with bottles from the stands, and the Ghanaian fans as well came came under attack or under under bombardment as well. And then there was a pitch invasion by Nigerian fans. Uh, they damaged two dugouts. Uh, they were they were on the pitch and. Uh, running riot at some points before a bit of tear gas dispelled them. So in in some ways, that has overshadowed that Ghanaian victory on aggregate. And uh, Nigeria, the NFF, uh, the Nigerian Football Federation, are now awaiting sanctions from FIFA, which which one expects will happen. But um, so many times, uh, fan violence is not punished. Uh, but those were sort of uh, scenes that no one wants to see at the end of a football match. Absolutely. And uh, just like African football, um, the happenings off the field can almost uh, uh, overshadow the happenings on the field. And we also might mention there are reports of some bitty, pretty big crowd crushes outside the stadium. Uh, again, it wasn't um, fully ticketed. There was uh, entry on the day for some people. Um, 
disappointing. I understand that, uh, you know, in the in the shadows of what happened in Cameroon at the uh, the African Nations, Cup of Nations, Rob, uh, you would think that administrators and uh, federations putting on these massive events, and they are, um, you know, by global standards, massive events, these big um, knockouts. You think that they would organise and try and protect um, the, the, the fans from themselves. Uh, when I heard the, the reports of crowd crashes, I was very worried. Yeah, very much so. A colleague of mine uh, was, was there at the game. He was almost caught in a crush outside the uh, outside the stadium trying to get in. He he reported uh, getting into a turnstile. They sort of got the old wheeled turnstiles that go round where, you know, it's one person in and then you, it clacks round. He said there were, there were three or four people in a turnstile. He had his phone and wallet stolen in the crush um, as he was going in to try and cover the game. Uh, it could have been much worse. And as you say, lessons don't seem to have been learned. I mean, eight people died outside the Alembe Stadium in Cameroon during the, the Cup of Nations. And yet, you know, it is almost so close to to another tragedy on, on, on this scale. Um, Nigeria gave out 20,000 free tickets for this game. And you almost think, why are you giving out free tickets for a game where, you know, there already should be interest and there should be so many people going. Uh, there was talk that... Uh, I think the the capacity of that stadium in Abuja is 60,000. There was talk of it being capped, but uh, my colleague reported crowds of people in walkways, uh, in, you know, in the steps, in the concourses, overcrowding once again. Um, So it's definitely a concern. And I must also have to report there were, there were videos of Algerian fans ripping up seats and throwing them onto the track in, in bleeder after conceding that goal. Of course, passions run high at football it's very important that the states um, of these games mean that they're high profile. Everyone wants to go to the World Cup, but it's it's just not excusable. Partly the fan behaviour and obviously as well the policing, the security, it needs to be improved. Rob, back to the Egypt-Senegal second instalment, if you like, off the back of the CAF uh, final. You said at that point that it pitted the swagger of Alou's Senegal, if you like, against the more sort of stolid, uh, conservative Carlos uh, Quiroz. Uh, it did go to penalties. It went the distance. But did that stylistic divide remain uh, throughout this tie for yours? Yeah, pretty much so. I, I missed the first leg, uh, but the second was very much a case of uh, Senegal dominance in terms of they were, the, they were the team taking the game to Egypt. Egypt were trying to break up the play and didn't really have too many chances. Uh, I can't believe how Senegal didn't win it before going to penalties. Ismail Assar in particular had two glorious chances, uh, one in the second half where he was uh, released one-on-one with the keeper but side-footed wide. And then in the uh, in extra time, he had a glorious chance from a Sadio Mane cross uh, he had the goal gaping, but somehow he put the ball back across goal and managed to pick out Mohamed El Shanawi. Egypt did have a couple of chances themselves in extra time. The substitute Zizo was bright when he came on. But again, I, I think in terms of the neutral, Senegal play the better football than Egypt do. Uh, again, Carlos Quiroz is a coach who likes to keep it tight. Egypt was sort of, you know, time-wasting a bit during that second leg, looking to take the game a distance. Mohamed Salah didn't really have too many sights at goal himself during that second leg having been influential in the first leg in enforcing the first goal. Um, but but for me, I, I don't think in terms of the neutral, it's not necessarily a big shame that Egypt will be missing out on the tournament given, uh, given the disparity in terms of the level of play between Senegal and Egypt. Of course, it's a shame for Mohamed Salah. He was disconsolate at the end as he trudged off the pitch. Uh, but 
but for me, Senegal, uh, again, are, are more likely to make an impact at the World Cup. Hey, Rob, can we ask you about Morocco? We, we haven't spoken too much about them in this segment. They've qualified for the sixth time in their history. Uh, three goals um, taking them taking them through. Um, but it's not all well in Morocco. The uh, manager, and I'm going to butcher his name here, uh, Vahid Velahodzic, um, is not a favourite of the fans, is he? Is he going to make it to the World Cup? Well, it'll be interesting. He he continues to have the faith of the Moroccan uh, Football Federation, uh, despite alienating two of their their star players, in a way. Uh, Hakim Ziyech, the Chelsea winger, has had a falling out with Velahodzic. He hasn't played for the national team for over a year and has rejected the past couple of call-outs. Um, so it's interesting that they've managed to progress you know, serenely in a way without him. The rest of the team uh, works quite well. There's also uh, the Ajax defender, Nusser Mazrui, who has also been sidelined after falling out with Halle Hodzic. Um, but he's a... He... He's a man who's a disciplinarian coach. He sticks to his ways. He's had success in qualifying teams for the World Cup, Ivory Coast, Algeria, Japan and Morocco. He's managed to qualify for the past four World Cups, although he was sacked before taking charge of Ivory Coast in 2010 and Japan in 2018. So it'd be tough on him if for a, for a third time he's sacked before the tournament. It, it, it's quite possible they might replace him. Um, but I think in a way... Because he managed to get to the quarterfinals of the Africa Cup of Nations and and now getting through the qualifiers, although one must say that during the group stage of qualifying, Morocco did actually play all their six qualifiers at home uh, because their opponents were stripped of groups uh, of home advantage for various reasons, uh, including coups uh, in, in, in those countries. Um, but on this occasion... They were very impressive in the second leg. They they got an early lead and ran that home against DR Congo. Um, so he, he has the support of the of the board as it stands. Obviously, a lot can change between now and November, um, but he seems to be doing it his way. And how about uh, Kiros? We mentioned, uh, you know, the sort of celebrated and famous Egypt manager. He's he's lost the uh, the African nations. He's now not going to the World Cup. Do, do, does he have any prospects of? continuing in that Egypt job, do you think? Well, he put out some some fairly cryptic tweets after their defeat, sort of suggesting that he might be on his way. And we, we also have, um, uh, in the press conference after the uh, the Senegal game, he also hinted that his contract would be up and he'd be leaving. Uh, um, colleagues of ours at the BBC in, in Egypt have, have stated that the uh, Egyptian Football Association is still keen to keep him. But obviously... The, the qualifiers for the next Africa Cup of Nations are expected to start in June. Um, so it's still a bit of a doubt whether he'll remain in place for those. And as well, the, the other man who might be on his way is Jamal Balmadi, the Algerian manager. It's thought that he's possibly thought that he's taken Algeria's so-called golden generation as far as he can. Of course, he won the Africa Cup of Nations in, in 2019 but uh, had a disastrous uh, defence of that uh, title earlier on this year in Cameroon. And now after that defeat to Cameroon, he might be well uh, on his way as well. So it'll be interesting to see what updates come out in the next couple of weeks about the futures of Carlos Quiroz and Jamal Bamadi. So, Rob, last time you were with us, I asked you the question as to uh, which of the African nations would do the most damage in Qatar. You uh, you mentioned Senegal at the time after the final rounds of qualifying. you still stand by that? Yeah, very much so. I think that Senegal are, are the top team in Africa, undoubtedly, for the past few years. 
given their showing at the Africa Cup of Nations, edging past another difficult tie against Egypt. The attacking talent that they've got on show, the way the team's set up, Ali Usise has been there a long time in charge. He knows what makes this side tick. They've got a great spine through the side of Edouard Mendy, Kaladu Koulibaly, Idrissa Ghana Gay, and then Sadio Mane up top pulling the strings, who is in great form and really rivaling Mohamed Salah as, as you know one of the top players at Liverpool and in the world at the moment. I think that Senegal are the team that are going to go far at the World Cup. This could come back and bite me as if on Friday's draw they end up with the likes of England or Argentina or someone like that. But I think that Senegal, they didn't get out of the group stage last time on fair play in uh, in Russia. I think they're going to make an impact in Qatar. Yeah, well, we hope they do. There's uh, there's something about the uh, the joie de vivre that the African nations bring to to the World Cup, and uh, it's it's inevitable. One day it's going to happen that they'll break through. Uh, is it going to be Qatar this year, Rob? We um, well, who knows? We uh, we might all. Um, be pleasantly surprised if it happens. Rob, thanks again for joining us. Uh, if uh, you can spare the time, mate, we, we might talk to you a little closer to uh, to the World Cup and, and do a bit of a preview of, of the groups that the various African nations have fallen into. Of course, yeah. I mean, uh, it'll be great if another te- African team could get to the quarterfinals at least or even further to the semifinal. Mm. But uh, one never knows how the vagaries of the FIFA draw will work out. And, uh, and you know, obviously there's a lot of, lot of water to pass under the bridge until until the tournament itself in Qatar, but it's definitely one to look forward to. It sure is, mate. Rob, thanks again for joining us. No worries. Sorry about those little audio issues there at the end, but I hope the edit's all right for you. Sounds perfect, Rob. Rob Stevens from BBC Sport Africa. Okay, stick around. Stoppage time is next. We're going to wrap it all up on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. This is stoppage time. Fourth official has given us all the time we need to cover all the topics we haven't. Uh, we've talked plenty of World Cup so far from a domestic point of view. Um, there's been a stack of fixtures which we've talked about from a score point of view and briefly touched on. But, Derek, um, there were some uh, some wonderful results around the world, but some heartbreak as well, particularly uh, Europe. And, and there's still another result because of the uh, war in the Ukraine uh, that um, that is still up in the air as to, to when that's actually going to be resolved. Yes, it is. And Scotland are worried because it looks like they're going to play six games, six international fixtures, June this year. So when the players are meant to be on holiday, uh, you know, the traditional, you know, break period for European football, they're going to have to play uh, two uh, of these uh, qualifying games, well, up to two if they if they beat the Ukraine. And then they've got four Nations League games to play as well. So uh, I wouldn't want to be Steve Clark and Scotland. Clearly those qualifiers are the most important and then they're going to have to rotate the squad a bit for the Nations League, if, if that's what they're going to do. But, uh, of course, uh, the big stories were in the European qualifying for the World Cup, and um, Bruno Fernandes scored a brace for that star-studded Portugal team who sort of trampled over North Macedonia. So, you know, they'd obviously were the giant killers of Italy in the last round and probably would have fancied it again. But I think Portugal are a lot more ruthless and despite some defensive frailties, all that attacking flair came to the fore. And look, I think the tournament will be better with them there, to be honest. I think uh, particularly without Italy, 
Um, we all like to see new bloods in the World Cup, but I think Portugal is one of those teams that you look out for and and you want to see. So I think that's uh, think that's okay. And Poland are also there too. Uh, inevitably, Robert Lewandowski got on the school sheet in a two 0 win over Sweden. So the Sweden won't be there and Zlatan, but uh, Edge, I think that's pretty good to see Robert Lewandowski there. I think that you know the World Cup will be. Bright, a brighter place with him in it? I think Poland's been good value in the Euros. I think they've been good value through the qualification phase. They had one of the more difficult groups. I think they're worthy. Uh, they've got a worthy place in the um, in the uh, the World Cup finals. And I think they would have destroyed Russia. They were going to play Russia, weren't they? I think they probably would have done. Uh, you're right. They are a strong team. Good goalkeeper. Good attacking players. So, yeah, Poland, we'll keep an eye on them. Could be a, a dark horse in, in the World Cup for sure. When you've got a an assassin like Lewandowski up front, I, I don't think you can... Yeah, anything's rule, possible. With anything is possible, team. you know, the 40-odd goals he's already scored this season. Talking about lethal strikers, um, Harry Kane, just mentioning England, and scored another goal in the uh, the win over the Ivory Coast. And... He's now bearing down on the all-time England goal-scoring record, of course, is held by Wayne Rooney. Uh, I think he's got four more to go. Um, A lot of people talking about Harry Kane's legacy this week, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, he hasn't won anything in his career either with England or, or with Tottenham. So, you know, this will be a great achievement. And it's not if, but, you know, when he gets there, he will get there. He may need to do it in an empty stadium too. A couple of England's Nations League games will be played behind closed doors. Potentially, he'll get this record in front of no fans. But, Rob, just really quickly on Kane. I mean, the goals speak for themselves, really. But can he really be sort of seen in the pantheon of of great English, if not world strikers. It's interesting you mentioned that. I was listening to the BBC this week and, and to listen to some uh, um, British pundits reflect on Harry Kane's career so far, uh, despite his records. The lack of silverware is the, the glaring omission, isn't it? So, you know, how, how can you talk about a player as being one of the all-time greats if he's never won anything? So the, I think the real question for Harry Kane is... Uh, is about um, his club career in the future, and uh, and and does he resurrect that um, that attempted move to, to Manchester City to try and uh, to 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 just put the polish that his career uh, really does, I think, deserve? Um, England, I think, are entitled to be amongst the favourites for the World Cup. There's no reason why he might not be the guy who lifts the trophy in the end. So I feel like this conversation probably needs to, at the very least, happen. Uh, again, it's sort of next update after the World Cup, see how England goes, and then and then maybe in another 18 months' time. I don't think the Harry Kane story is quite, quite uh, complete, uh, but what I would say is if he doesn't manage to put uh, a significant trophy on the shelf, then then the, I think the answer is no. If he doesn't leave Tottenham, then England is really his, his only realistic opportunity for a significant uh, trophy. He was so close for the Champions League, rushed himself back for that final, of course, and missed out at the end. But I agree with you, Rob. I think, I uh, hate to say it, England do look good. Uh, they've got a very settled lineup. The squad seems extremely happy. I think the game against the Ivory Coast showed the depth of the squad. Yeah, uh, Jude Bellingham is absolute Rolls Royce of a player, and I, you know I think Southgate has got to try and find a way to get him into the team 
Harry Maguire obviously booed in that game, and that's a, a quite a strange scenario. And at the England level, I don't actually think Harry Maguire's done an awful lot wrong. He's pretty much a bulwark of that defence. Gareth Southgate has a lot of faith in him, and yes, his form for Manchester United has been pretty ropey this season. But I, I don't really get why you know the fans would be booing him, and I think that just adds to that discussion we've already had about you know, a certain element of the England fans and, and why England continues to be one of the least likable of the international teams, despite having a pretty decent squad of players and, and, and a pretty a good man manager in uh, in Gareth Southgate. But if we before we leave talking about strikers, I also wanted to mention that uh, Olivier Giroud, 35 years old now, he's only three short of Thierry Henry's old, all-time goal-scoring record for France of... 51, obviously two Arsenal men there and uh, Edge just quickly on Giroud. I, I think you're probably the same as me. I, we think this guy is a pretty underrated player. Don't see why why he left Arsenal and he could end up being France's all-time goal scorer. He's a great player and extremely under-recognised, wasn't he, at, at Arsenal? And uh, I'm with you. I was heartbroken when he left because he was such a good uh, avenue to goal and uh, incredibly good link player and, and superb with his back to the goal. Uh, speaking of strikers that are superb with their back to the goal, mm. Dortmund's Haaland, there's um, rumours that his price tag is £300 million all in. That figure includes wages, a sale fee and an estimated £30 million cut for the agent Mine Riola. Uh, Pretty good, pretty pretty good coin if you can uh, if you can land something like that. Uh, Three hundred million pounds is he worth that much, Derek? By my calculation, that makes him the same value as what the Saudis played for Newcastle United. <laughs> so when you put it and you put it in that context, he's more he's as valuable as a as a Premier League football club who own their stadium with a squad of players. Like it's that a perennial question. He's probably not worth three hundred million. I mean, what you know, <laughs> but in the same time, we're talking today's today's markets. We all know Dortmund's business model, and they've spent years shifting on their best players, whether it be Mad Summers or uh, Obama Yang or Goethe, or any 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 of these players. Uh, but you know, I think they know that you know, even amongst that cream of talent. This is an exceptional player who's at the very, very beginning of his career. Like this is still a baby in football terms. I don't. I think he's early twenties, so he's still got decade or more. And I, I think he is the most dynamic and complete striker in 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 the Premier League. I'd, my question would be just how do you afford that package? I don't. You know, you can really only see one of the nation state back clubs going after him and being able to make that work because. Even with the uncertainty over Chelsea now, they may be bought by a, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a Yankee billionaire. But that model is going to change. It isn't just going to be throwing good money after bad there. So they've made, they've set their stall out edge. That's for sure. And they might not get three hundred million, but I reckon they're going to get a very big number. And I think whoever he goes to, he could be a, a player that delivers major trophies for that team because he's a he's an absolute firecracker. Speaking around the European football, just a quick line I wanted to to bring up. Um, there's plans afoot 
to change the qualifications of the Champions League, gents, you'll have noticed that, you know, off the back of the European Super League debacle, European Club Association is posing that qualification for the tournament may not now just be based on a league finish, but actually based on uh, historic performance either within uh, with, within those tournaments, sorry, as well. So wouldn't work for someone like Arsenal at the moment who don't have any recent pedigree in the Champions League, but it would work for people like Manchester United and others if they do end up slipping out of that top six. Um, Rob, this just feels this just feels like the inevitable, really. It's just another gambit for, um, you know, not a problem. Liverpool are going to be suffering with recently, but another, another gambit from particularly, you know, your top European clubs on the way to try and ensure that they qualify for these top tournaments. Well, we had Henry Winter from the Times on a couple of times uh, when this story, law of the, the iteration of the Super League last blew up. And uh, Henry has, has that uh, loquacious way of, uh, of uh, cutting it down in uh, the way that only uh, a, a, a brilliant uh, English journalist can do. So it feels like we need to get Henry back on to, to sort of dissect what this is all about. But it just seems like another stealth attack from another angle. So you don't get them head on, come around the flanks and try to outflank them, do it in a more subtle way, and then eventually get your outcome. Uh, I don't think any of us ever thought that it was going to completely disappear. But uh, but the, um, the, the same... Um, uh, the same feel uh, exists around around this proposal, doesn't it? Oh, look, I, I just yeah, it's, it's, it's inevitable. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, the big European clubs and they demonstrated this with the Super League that they just don't want to have to qualify for these tournaments anymore. They want to take the jeopardy out of it. They want to be in there with the cash so that they can continue fueling big spending on on wages and you know, building their stadiums and doing all the other things that big clubs do. And unfortunately, that sort of stuff is not good for the fabric of the game. It's not good for the good for, for the teams, whether it be Sheffield or someone like this year, who we took a bit of an interest in and, and, and others like them. So, yeah, look, it stinks. As much as I, I'm desperate for Arsenal to get back into the top table of European football example, you know, I don't want to get in on this way. I'd rather, you know, have a good Premier League season and feel that my team deserves to be there on on, on merits, to be honest with you. Edge, we spoke about uh, a great Norwegian player in Harlem before, but there's another great Norwegian player on the female side of the game, Ada Hedeberg, uh, you know, ex-world uh, player of the year, um, and she's returned to the national team. She has returned to the national team squad um, and via an announcement on a 50-second video message. Um, obviously, she had a self-imposed ban on herself for five years since 2017, uh, saying that she wouldn't play for her national team until there was gender equity um, in the pay between the Norwegian men and women's programs. And uh, a new CEO at uh, the Norwegian uh, Football uh, Federation has committed to uh, equal pay and uh, outline a timeline. So she's back in the fold. But I just absolutely loved her opening uh, comments in the little video that went around to all of the Norwegian uh, football stakeholders. She just looked at the uh, camera, paused and said, long time, no see. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. So uh, arguably, um, you know, in women's football, she's in the top uh, 10 players for sure, probably in the top players for sure. Ballon d'Or's 
championships in the Women's uh, Champions League with Olympic Lyon. Um, so, yeah, great to see her back in international football. And if you're a, a Norway fan or if you're a little girl in Norway, it's just a great day. So uh, welcome back, Ada, and uh, and Godspeed to you. And let's hope uh, you um, there's still enough in your career for you to um, enjoy uh, the spoils of some big victories on the international stage. Now, we're moving away from the uh, female game. You want to talk about balls? <laughs> I do indeed, Derek. Yeah, look, uh, if there's one thing we look forward to every four years in global football, it's not the World Cup. Uh, it's far more important uh, that Adidas are able to roll out another ball. Uh, I'm here to inform you that this year it's going to be the Al Rila, which translates in Arabic to the journey. Who could forget Edge? The, uh, the, uh, who could forget as I forget the name of it? The, uh, hang on. No, <laughs> I've really forgotten the name of it. Uh, the Javalani in South Africa, which is, of course, erratic. <laughs> Uh, and well, you know, of course, you know, well, you know uh, you're probably a little bit too young for this. Oh, this is stoppage time, so please indulge me, Willem. Uh, but you're probably a little bit too young for this, but I reckon Rob Gilbert will know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. When you're a young fellow, Rob, and uh, you're in the back of the Holden Kingswood. It, that's what or, it was. Station yeah, the Holden Kingswood. Um, and you, the old man went down the servo and uh, you, went, you went in the back seat uh, with him to fill up the Kingswood as you did for about uh, 15 or 16 cents a litre. Um, and you just jumped out of the car and you ran straight across to the bin of balls mm. on the outside of the servo and you grab one of those balls and it's one of those plastic things that if you threw it up in the air, the wind used to get it and you'd be, it'd be banting down the street, you'd be chasing after it for years. They cost about 20 or 30 cents. Um, the bloke who designed the Jabalaya... The bloke who designed the Jabalani in South Africa, I reckon that's where he got his motivation from, Rob. <laughs> exactly. So I think even for those of us who are not yours and my vintage edge, uh, you painted a pretty clear picture there. And, uh, yeah, the Jabalani just sort of uh, – it had a life of its own, didn't it? Sort of curved and swung and, and did some weird things. Well, it was it was a new material. It was a, mm-hmm. like a, a material that hadn't been used on the ball before. And it just – when you held it – and I've got one – where I'm sitting right now, it's uh, signed by all the uh, Socceroos. I've got Jebelani over there, and when you lift it up, it just feels like it's out of the the bin at the servo in 1981. <laughs> So four years later in Brazil, it was the brazooka, which was marketed as the roundest ball ever. So it's not enough to just release a ball. You've got to market it somehow as well. So just quickly, the El Rila uh, is going to be faster than any ball in flight and delivers the highest level of accuracy. I want to leave you with there, Rob. Well done, Willem. See, um, you never say you don't learn something on uh, on box to box as we gibber on and uh, and try to make sense of uh, of some things um, in the world game. So. Uh, Good on you, mate. And Edge, um, for bringing back the memories as well, big fella. Uh, boys, I think it's uh, about um, enough for, for another week. Um, thank you, uh, Damo. Um, I usually leave you till the last, but because you probably have uh, most uh, responsibility for making this thing sound good, uh, mate, uh, I hope the tears are beginning to dry uh, with the Azuri not being uh, in Qatar this year. Um, Edge, um Enjoy the week ahead, my friend, after your busy week up there in Sydney. Yeah, looking forward to this weekend. And uh, don't forget, we've got so much to look forward to. We've got uh, Matilda's friendlies coming up. We've got, obviously, all the um, jeopardy of uh, Australia's run into the playoffs. So we've got A-League winding up. And um, we've got NPL fixtures right around Australia starting and uh, community football 
uh, you know, well and truly back on uh, back in check. I think the NPL women start in uh, Victoria, New South Wales. So there is a lot to look forward to. Enjoy your football wherever you are. Well done, Edge. Thank you, mate. Uh, Derek, enjoy the week ahead. Premier League back on this weekend. Yeah, enjoying that. Enjoying the balls chat as well, guys. Love the 1990 World Cup. Etrusco Unico is my favourite, based on the fine art of the Etruscans. So, Italians great at art and also great at footballs. See, you just keep on learning on Box to Box. Willem, well done. Thank you very much, gents. Have a good week. And well done. Look, I'm going to give you a bit of credit. I know we, we've we talked about our good uh, well, our good friend, uh, the legend that is Shane Warne, but Willem uh, had a, a big role in, uh, in the, the broadcast of the Shane Warne Memorial at the MCG as his career goes from strength to strength. So uh, uh, well done to you on that as well, mate. Thank you, Rob. Cheers. Very great. Uh, kind words. No, not at all. It was a, an amazing night at the G. And uh, to you, dear listeners, thanks again for joining us. Please subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And make sure you join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.